Welcome to the UFSA podcast. I am your host, Michaela Lopez, and today we are at a roundtable with four students who will be presenting their film studies essays at the annual UFSA Symposium. The UFSA Symposium is an annual academic symposium where the UBC students have the opportunity to present their accepted works on film and television to a community of folks interested in film at UBC. <laughs> uh, this year's authors examine the four films, Lady Bird, Ex Machina, Under the Skin, and Omar, and one TV series, Riverdale, with topics ranging from gendered violence and resistant geopolitics to theories on Instagram and realism. Intrigued? As are we! Join us at the UFSA Symposium from 4 to 8 p.m. on Friday, March 23rd at the Buchanan Penthouse at UBC. Uh, first off, we'd like to acknowledge that the symposium and this podcast is hosted on the unceded, ancestral, and occupied territories of the Monkwiam-speaking Musqueam peoples. Okay, now let's meet the four authors whose work will be showcased at the symposium this year. Uh, if you could please go around the table and introduce yourselves. So we'll start off here. Hi, I'm Linnea. I'm a fourth year student in the film production program. My essay is on uh, Lady Bird and Bazin, um, and a little bit on Instagram and neorealism. All of those stuff mashed together. Uh, so we'll talk about them more later. Um, I'm Maxim. I'm a fourth year art history um, major. I'm, my paper is called Costumes of Subjectivity, Gender of the Body, and the Contemporary Science Fiction Film. Um, and my films are about, or my paper is about the films Under the Skin and Ex Machina. Um, kind of exploring gender and otherhood and looking at like, feminist theory, queer theory. Did I totally mispronounce? Is it ex machina or ex machina? I just Googled it, ah. um, and the correct pronunciation is, I think, ex machina. Yeah. Okay, I might have messed up. Edit that I out. Say machina. Okay. <laughs> okay. Like, I've wrote that word so many times in the ah, paper, okay. but never actually said it. So. Is it not machina? <clears throat> it's machina. Machina? Yeah. Or Makina, I don't Makina. know. Makina, Makina. It's yeah. a <laughs> by the symposium, I will know the Machina. correct pronunciation <laughs> <Machina>. of this. <laughs> it's, not mach- it's not Machina. <laughs> Someone okay. corrected me on that. <laughs> uh, we'll go on to the person next to Maxim. Um, I'm Marta. I'm in my final year of my art history degree, um, and my paper that I'm presenting is on the uh, TV series Riverdale and talking about neo-noir um, as a genre and how that kind of blends with the teen genre and how the two kind of mirror each other and work together to create a series that is actually quite quite mature and um, almost productive uh, looking at social issues and uh, kind of social paranoia today. Sweet. Riverdale, it, what is it, renewed for a second season or is it on its new uh, It's currently on its second ah, season, yeah, yeah. I know, okay. but don't know how well it's doing. <laughs> interesting, interesting. Yeah. Okay, and our final student here. Um, I'm Mitra. I'm graduating in May with a BA in art history. And uh, my paper is on the Palestinian film Omar, um, which is basically, I'm going to be focusing on questions of mobility and identity and um, how these are tied into the larger geopolitical issues of territory in the film and um, the conflict that the film is taking part Sweet. I've never heard of that film, so I'd be really interested to yeah, hear more about your paper. It's really, um, it's kind of a, an indie production, I think. Sweet. Okay, so now everyone's acquainted and kind of knows what everyone else is doing. Uh, let's dive into your papers. Okay, this is going to be a little scary, so who wants to talk about their paper first? Just a little bit more. At this point, if you would like me yeah, to Yeah, sure. Go ahead, Linda. <laughs> so you're doing it on Ladybird and what else? Uh, Ladybird, Near Realist Films, Instagram, all sorts of... Fun stuff. Fun millennial stuff. Yeah, millennial yeah. stuff. <laughs> I'm a millennial. 
Um, so uh, what inspired me to make this, it was, it was written under um, the film theory course with Christine Evans, which is fantastic. Um, I reading the Byzantine theory in that class, it was like, oh my God, stuff that actually makes you feel good when you read it and you're reading in university. What? I thought you're supposed to be depressed all the time. Um, so a lot of the series are about how um, film as a medium and cameras as a medium give you this special access to reality uh, because they are manufactured through a machine rather than through human um, human mediation, like through drawings or paintings. It's like this special uh, way of seeing the world that is gonna make you get, have this like clarity of insight. He has this beautiful language too that makes all this stuff like nice to read. <clears throat> so in that essay I want, or in that class I wanted to write an essay on Bazin, um, and I happened to watch Lady Bird at the same time. Mm -hmm. It came out like December and I was taking the course in December. Um, and watching that, it had that same feeling as a lot of neorealist films, which are the things that Bazin was inspired by in all these theories. Um, so I was like, oh, well, there's probably something interesting to say here, maybe, try to make a bridge. Um, as well as uh, in reading a lot of his theory, he talks about how um, the best use of a camera is to capture reality, unmediated, hopefully, by like human intervention. He's not a formalist mm -hmm. in his uh, theory. He's a realist. So... Um, when I was like scrolling through Instagram feeds and watching people's videos, a lot of people will film like really short snippets of landscapes and stuff that are mm -hmm. very calming and real. They're kind of little, like an ASMR type yeah, of thing. Yeah, a little bit ASMR-y, uh, but like with visuals and sound. Um, and I just thought like all of these seem to share in common something Bazenian, and I wanted to explore what that was, and you'll find out what it is in the essay. It's also a video essay. Um, I, in... I feel like it's very important to make uh, scholarship, works of scholarship as accessible as possible. Mm -hmm. So with the video essay, I want it to be aimed not at like a film studies audience, but as a mainstream audience to um, try to invite people into these more complex ideas and make it like, well, this stuff is relevant and important to talk about and important to you, and it might help you in some way. So um, in making it into a video essay, I wanted to explore that sort mm -hmm. of accessibility thing. Could you explain to me more about the, I know this is like, totally what's going to be more explained into your paper, but I'm kind of intrigued by the idea that you're saying something about Bazan's idea of, what is it, translating human life through this kind of little mm -hmm. piece of technology? And like, that's a little different than what I've, what I've personally experienced through art, because a lot of the time, human faces are almost synonymous to screens. Like in a lot of sci-fi mm -hmm. dystopian films, they'll kind of juxtapose, um, or not even juxtapose, pose a similarity to how human faces are screens. Or and there's not very different. There not very much difference between, um, between like computers and people. And it's very Black Mirror almost. Oh, like very, that. Very ghost in the shell. Technology is becoming yeah. more and more human. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, so I mean, I guess the the root of that is kind of. Um, I don't know if the theory is only like I don't think Bazen is the only person that proposed this idea. Mm -hmm. I think perhaps Benjamin's paper on mechanical reproduction kind of touches on it too, um, where. Like, when a machine produces a piece of art, or is somehow used to produce a piece of art, it's cleaner and more... cleaner in, like, a... I don't know, it's, it's, <laughs> it's tough to navigate these like words without, like, messing it up. Yeah, I guess, like, it's, it's... Human brains are messy in that you have to... It's, like, it goes from... You, you see something with your eyes, and then it goes into your brain, and then from your brain your muscles move and then produces, like, a line on a piece of paper, and mm -hmm. it's interpretive in its very essence. Whereas when you just set up a camera or when you produce like a 
a copy of something with like a printing press as opposed to copying it like line by line. Mm -hmm. Um, it's, it's like a, it's the machine just takes what it, what is inputted and like gives it back to you exactly as is. So, I mean, in, in a sense, um, so it's like missing the third party. Like yeah, mediation. it's missing. It's missing the mediation of the artist. So it's delivering it directly from the object to the audience. But there's still an artist involved because mm -hmm. somebody has to take the photo or somebody has to take make the film. Mm -hmm. um, so, in that way, cameras and film are a special means of art and must and can be exploited in a very special way through like as unmediated a way as possible. Mm -hmm. But it's still highly, highly, highly mediated. Like there's still so many decisions that have to be made. So, I mean, in that there's this weird other angle of like, well, so the camera is objective, but then the way that people use it has to be super subjective. Like mm -hmm. you have to input your own love into it in order to make these objective pieces. It's all very, there's a lot of- A lot of terminology. A lot, a lot of, of paradoxes. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I mean, it ends up being very, very pretty in the end. I can imagine. And so what, you were just reading this paper when Ladybird came out and you're just mm -hmm. like, I can put these two together for a paper. Yeah, yeah. And I think, I mean, watching Ladybird, it's just such a, uh, if you listen to the first, to the, not, was it the first one, the, the Christmas, not Christmas, but the, the, like, films of 2017. Oh, podcast. our first round table. That's a yeah. good, that's a good plug-in for our yeah, first Yeah, so, so if you, if you listen to the first round table, um, in that one, uh, I highlighted Lady Bird as my favorite film of 2017, because it was just so warm, mm -hmm. um, and had this, like, feeling of, of reality and of love for, for its characters and for its uh, location and for its setting mm -hmm. um and just the watching it was so wonderful I think a lot of like films are a lot of films are a lot more pessimistic perhaps mm -hmm. they're trying to like prove a point and trying to be political and that's very important but it's nice to have an escape from that every mm -hmm. so often Interesting. Mm -hmm. And okay, earlier you mentioned something about subjectivity, and mm -hmm. does that possibly tie into yours, Maxim, at all? Because you, what was your paper called? My paper was called Costumes of Subjectivity. Costumes of Subjectivity. Yeah. Okay, explain that idea to me more. So the, the way I came up with that title and the way I started thinking about the paper was um, two science fiction films, Under the Skin and Ex Machina, came out back to back, like about a, about a year or two apart, mm -hmm. and they both featured an other, an, like a sci-fi other, which is often an alien or a robot, mm -hmm. um, as they are in the films, um, who were both hiding in the skin, in a sense, of a woman, a human woman. So mm -hmm. um, Ava, the robot in Ex Machina, is this constructed machine based off of a bunch of patriarchal simulations by this like tech bro inventor mm -hmm. um, who has been like spying on the main character, Caleb. And so... It, uh, and then whereas in um, Under the Skin, it's this, it's Scarlett Johansson, like, you know, the sex symbol of, like, the mid-2000s, mm -hmm. um, who is an alien, who has this, like, strange black, like, humanoid form, who is also hiding under the skin of a woman, and they wear a lot of bodily signifiers throughout the film. Um, so, yeah, there's, it's all, it's, there's definitely a lot of ideas of subjectivity, um, that engage with like otherhood and femininity, um, and also just um, the way um, subjectivity is constituted, like through these visual signifiers and through language and gender. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So why did you choose costumes particularly? Like, who's wearing the costume in that title? Who's um, seeing that costume of subjectivity in that title? They're both kind of they're both disguised as women in a sense, mm -hmm. and I've been taking a lot of 
courses in art history and film studies at that time that were on postmodernism. Um, so we look at ideas of performativity, um, so Judith Butler, um, and then people like Craig Owens, who wrote mm. The Discourse of Others. But yeah, there's this kind of this masquerade um, to gender performance, mm-hmm. um, and that's definitely something that's simulated within the films. Um, in the opening, one of the opening scenes, uh, Scarlett Johansson's character goes into a mall and just buys like a fur coat and buys makeup and, you know, starts looking at other females and how they interact with men. And then she, it kind of flips the script in a little bit in that she adopts the role of like the monster or the, the predator. So she lures mm-hmm. men into her, into her, um, truck and attempts, uh, to seduce them and bring them into this weird lair where she like drains their bodies of all of their matter and their only thing left behind is skin, which is strange because they're <laughs> hiding underneath, she, she's hiding underneath skin um, and she leaves these men kind of just like floating in this weird like abyss with just skin. It's really like kind of a weird surreal abstract scene. It sounds kind of fetal. Yeah, a little bit, yeah, yeah. It's like yeah, there's lots of ideas of like monster monstrosity and like kind of like motherhood and like the womb and like all kinds of other oh, things man, that, that sounds... I didn't really have time to get to, into in the paper but uh-huh. yeah that sounds like my jam actually I really yeah. do like ideas of like the return to the, the ideas of return to the womb and like monstrosity kind of put back together this kind of objection kind of thing going on yeah yeah um and from what you're saying you kind of play with two very similar but very different like feminine archetypes one is the honeypot where it's just like, yeah, she lures men and she totally eats them alive as well. But you've also, if I'm understanding correctly from your description of Ex Machina, um, this kind of na- naive child in a woman's body, almost. Or even, or am I misunderstanding that? Um, it's, I would say naive child, but I, um, Ava, the, the robot, is constructed to, to convince. Um, it's like a, they're doing the... Uh, I forget the name of the actual test, uh, but it's a test of consciousness to see if oh, like oh oh I remember that name um uh, Turing test yeah Turing test yeah hey. so it's a play on that and so just d- d- determining whether a machine can have consciousness and whether mm-hmm. a human can can be convinced of that consciousness and so um, she in order to convince it's kind of like it's very manipulative in order to convince him she plays off of all these feminine stereotypes of victimhood and so she does appear like really demure and weak and then like there's these power outages and then because they're being watched over cameras and so she's able to be like um, you know like get me out of here like I'm like this is what's happened to all the other robots that mm-hmm. came before me and so it, it plays a lot on I wouldn't say a child but they definitely um, the film and the way the robot within the film is designed is is kind of to play off of like a masculine idea of like of of inferiority towards towards women for sure. Mm. Yeah. Fair. Yeah. And I mean, what cost was this for again? This was for four three four B in film studies with Brian McElroy. So Ooh. it was a science fiction seminar. Oh sweet. Yeah, because that that course is like one that rotates um, topics every year. So. Yeah. Sweet. Yeah. And so speaking of archetypes, I'm really good at this transition stuff, guys. <laughs> yeah. uh, we move on to Marta's paper on Riverdale. And Riverdale kind of deals with these really beloved American icons. And I'm wondering, what have you written about the Riverdale, the show? <laughs> yeah, um, well, I can kind of go back to um, where the kind of topic came from. Um, I wrote it for a teen cinema class mm-hmm. uh, with Kimberly Montaigne. Great course. Lovely prof. Um, and the whole kind of course looked at how teen, the teen genre doesn't really stand on its own and it kind of reaches into a lot of different genres, whereas you can have like a defined Western or sci-fi or other things. The teen genre kind of always creeps a little bit into all of them. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the same time, this is when Riverdale was just coming out and it being in Vancouver, there was lots of talk about it. And I thought, okay, 
this is a kind of cool show and it uh, kind of comes down this line of a lot of these teen drama meets detective you know, noir of like Veronica Mars even Pretty Little Liars kind of fits in there mm-hmm. um, and I kind of was curious about what why there were so many shows that kind of took on this theme and what did the neo-noir genre of detectives and this kind of darker, moodier drama have to do with the teen genre and kind of teendom. Uh, So throughout my paper, I'm kind of looking at how the two work almost together and in unison and very much mirror each other in kind of detective and solving a crime and how it parallels this idea of um, kind of finding you as a teenager and finding that identity and the uncanniness of both and kind of how Riverdale kind of uproots classic noir out of urban centers and into now the suburban areas that Riverdale focuses on in this town, uh, Mm -hmm. much of the comics. So it does definitely take on these tropes of the same town and plays off the kind of all-American like Archie and and Betty and Veronica and Jack. They all kind of take on their same tropes. They have, uh, Jacket has his Uh, gray crown uh, toque and there's pop tates and it's all very much kind of playing off that nostalgia but it Mm -hmm. kind of takes it out of that generation maybe that knew it then and places it into a more contemporary socially aware um, kind of darker realm Um, and it also kind of plays off like Twin Peaks in that sense too that Mm -hmm. there's this kind of something's not right there's secrets there's things that don't quite line up Um, so it really does an interesting job of kind of drawing in through this beloved Archie comic series and kind of fandom and taking it into kind of a completely different direction. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I have some really, I, I'm not, I wouldn't say strong opinions about Riverdale. And like, obviously you had to, you had to be, you had to love, I don't know if you love the show. I was going to say, I might've liked it at the time. I mean, I was really <laughs> interested to see it. Uh, I thought the pilot was really intriguing. I was like, mm-hmm. oh, this could be an awesome show. And I really liked Veronica Mars and I liked that kind of style of show. So I was put a lot, I think, on it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I find anytime I analyze any kind of thing, you kind of, like, for writing or for critical analysis or academia, you kind of poke holes in things you might have loved about mm-hmm. it. But it also brings a new attention. Like, I think I have a different appreciation. Um, I now, like, don't really like any of the characters, and there's no one that I'm, like, rooting for in, in a show where you normally would. But I almost, I like the setting and kind of the issues brought up in cinematically, I guess, how it's constructed and narratively. Mm-hmm. So I, I like it as a kind of a piece of film or at least the first season I haven't really gone into the second season at all Mm -hmm. um but yeah it's it's interesting Mm, I I don't know because like when you talk about this kind of idea of Riverdale and Archie and Archie the gang essentially Mm -hmm. and you kind of turn it into this what what, what's the uh who produces the show again the CL or CW and they kind of make everyone sexy and shocking and available (laughs) and like I don't know it kind of for me it just feels like it doesn't necessarily bring things to... Uh, there are elements of, like, thriller, there are elements of neo-noir, but ultimately I'm just like, this was made for a public audience where you would kick back on Friday and drink it with a cup of wine and be like, ooh, what is Veronica, that bitch, going to say next? Like, Totally. So- it's... Yeah, I, I would agree with that, too, especially on a, a surface level, and mm-hmm. I think that's where I got a lot of its draw in, um, mm-hmm. that I talk about a lot in my paper, that it it's a highly consumable show from visual its soundscape, its characters, the nostalgia, the fandom around it. Um, even there's like so much product placement in it with CoverGirl, they have a huge deal with that. And so there's this whole idea of kind of making yourself to be one of the characters in the gang and like, are you a Betty or a Veronica? Um, it plays off kind of all those tropes that are in typical teen teen shows of kind of like, who do you, um, again, that kind of goes into 
teenage identity forming is who do you fit in with the show like where what character do you kind of coincide with Mm -hmm. um but I think after looking at it more critically um it offers interesting um kind of social understanding and the way society is organized through those tropes and so I don't know if the general public and the average teenager would necessarily grasp all that Mm -hmm. from what you said it's kind of like a kickback show but um I think it can do more um kind of especially looking its audience is interesting because there definitely is this youthful audience but it also has I think a more mature adult audience coming from the original Archie comics mm-hmm. and having who recognize these characters yeah and like Skeet Ulrich Luke Perry um Madge Madge and Amick are all in it and they're all well-known characters from like teen teen movies and films like a generation earlier so it mm-hmm. kind of draws in that crowd um so it's not there's a lot of kind of cultural to um easter eggs if you will but things that might not be picked up by everyone but i think if it for the right audience goer they might kind of gain something from it that is a little bit more um productive or, or valuable or meatier than maybe the average teen viewer would get from like a kind of more lighter mm-hmm. sort of teen mm-hmm. soap opera fair and it was also filmed in vancouver so yeah, so, yeah it's definitely cool to watch that lord bing and seeing it's like a little uh kind of tour of Vancouver a bit too which is kind of cool mm-hmm. that's my high school <laughs> that was your high school yeah. Yeah. dang it's mine too yeah. I, oh, wow. I, I, I passed by it on the bus today <laughs> yeah I know people from it's working. like the typical <laughs> North American high school is it are the scenes within it actually filmed within the school I know I like I'm not outside sure. no they go to a one. different school I assume they'd go somewhere else because they, like, they, they never do that with, I think Lord Bang usually is paired with kids yeah yeah Lord Bang's the outside kids is the inside oh, okay why? Who knows? There you go. Shout out if you go to Lord being your kid. <laughs> um, so I feel like all of these works, especially Linnea's and Marta's, usually, like, they kind of revolve around this very North American kind of context, mm-hmm. I feel. Very Does, white. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And, so, and yours kind of touches yeah, on that as well. Cause a two lot of, white women. Yeah, yeah. Very sci-fi. Very beautiful, <laughs> conventionally. Yeah. Very sci-fi. Yeah. And so I feel like your paper is like a, is not necessarily this touch upon North American culture, but kind of a departure from it. Mm-hmm. And so could you talk more about what interested you about for writing this paper and what class you yeah. wrote this for? Um, I wrote it for, Marta was in my classes for film in the city, Mm -hmm. and it was offered as an art history course, Mm -hmm. Um, even though it was mostly, it was like entirely film based, and Kimberly Montaigne taught it, and I think it was like uh, winter of 2016 or 2015, but uh, anyway, it was a class that mostly focused on um, how film like depicts the urban environment. And um, we looked at films like The Matrix and like Blade Runner, and uh, um, most of our like discussion was centered around uh, kind of North American um, films because the majority of films are produced like um, very Hollywood. in our culture yeah. where like North America has like yeah hegemony over like the film production, but. Um, I thought it was, like, it'd be interesting to think about how space, like, functions in filmic representation outside of um, the stable, like, context of, North, like, North American environments. Mm-hmm. Like, especially film that comes out of, like, places where territory is still being, like, constantly rerouted or, mm-hmm. like, disputed or... Um, somewhere such as like Israel and Palestine where the question of land is like the the number one question like powering all the like um I don't know 
atrocities that have like occurred in this I guess like trauma of like these two nations Mm -hmm. attempting to like somehow carve out like a state but yeah I just thought it would be interesting to apply like some kind of theoretical analysis to like how how you can convey these like volatile environments without like essentializing them essentializing them to like in a degree where it's like like kind of like humanitarian type like Mm. victimizing or um or essentializing as like uh, violent or like like i just kind of wanted to find like an honest or not honest but like a depiction that engages with like the realities on the ground Mm -hmm. So I thought that, um, I saw this film on Netflix. I don't, it's not on Netflix anymore. But. <laughs> I, I don't think I've ever seen it. Can you give me like a, like maybe like a three sentence or a little yeah, short Yeah, it's a, basically, it's about like the tit, titlier, that's not how you pronounce it. Titular. <laughs> I will titular. say <laughs> Character Omar. I tried to use a good word and then it didn't work. <laughs> um, it's about the character Omar and it basically just like follows him throughout like, um, he and his three friends are part of like a resistance brigade, which is like pretty common if you live in the occupied West Bank, mm-hmm. which is where he lives. And um, so the West Bank, just for like background info, has been under Israeli occupation since 1967. So that means that um, the airspace is controlled. There's very limited movements like in and out of the territory, and the whole like space is sealed off from like. Um, Israel proper, the state, by, like, the separation wall, which went up in 2000. And the film also, like, focuses a lot on the separation wall. Mm -hmm. And there's lots of scenes where Omar is climbing the wall to, like, get to his, the other side where his friends live. Mm -hmm. Because one of the main, like, um, tropes of the film is, I guess, disintegration of, like, uh, continuities and, like, relations and... um, ability to move or like I guess mobility but uh the film is basically about like the their their lives or mostly Omar and um they stage an attack on an Israeli checkpoint and then the ramifications that ensue uh result in like the slow breakdown of their friend group and Mm -hmm. it's like kind of these issues of like who's a collaborator with like the Israeli like military and who is like um the mole or whatever in their group Mm-hmm. So it really does take a look at the kind of inner workings without being so much of a essential. Well, it's not framing them in this. I guess the way I would want to kind of phrase it in my head is that the camera isn't necessarily a Western audience. Yeah, like it's kind of like um, like Omar does like has like very normal like reactions and like like he he basically like has a normal life, but then at the same time like we see scenes of like getting shot at like and then right after there's like a scene of him like with his friends in a cafe or something and they're just like chilling and it's it kind of like integrates like how that violence is like part of like the fabric of everyday life Mm -hmm. where it's like so like normalized that um it does occur like back to back to like leisure time like getting shot at on your way to like leisure with your friends or whatever so i just thought it was um interesting because the film is really good at uh conveying that kind of like frenzy of but not so much as like a juxtaposed like shocking kind of like 
one moment they're having coffee and the next thing they're in chaos. Yeah, it is and actually. Oh, it is. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> oh, sorry. There's like one scene where they literally are having tea and then like the cops like bust into the thing oh, and start okay. chasing them and then it leads into like a chase sequence which I wanted to analyze as part of my thesis. Were you able to? Yeah. Oh, sweet. No, I didn't. It seems like maybe because it's, it's not since it's not just the chase, mm-hmm. it's also the tea. It's like that's not something that you'd expect yeah. from a Western perspective. It's like, oh, well, all that happens there is this. And it's like, no, yeah, these exactly. people have lives. Mm-hmm. And like the, the chase sequence have so much content in them because like they're almost like a way that he like it shows you like the city. Because he, it just takes, like, his position weaving, like, in and out. And then um, he does, like, various things to, like, escape so that it's not just, like, a guy running away. It's, like, um, you're just kind of, like, really invested in, like, all the maneuvers that he's, like, doing to, like, escape. And that kind of, like, ties into, like, my central thesis, which is, like, I wanted to look at this film through the concept of elastic geography, which is... Um, I got this concept from the Israeli architect I.L. Wiseman, Mm -hmm. and he writes about it in his book, Hollow Land, Israel's Architecture of Occupation. Um, I have it. I wrote down a little bit of it, so I wouldn't be, like, babbling. Um, It's okay to babble. (laughs) That's what podcasts are for, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah, Wiseman, basically, he, like, refers to this, like, continual, like, disintegration, like, reorganization of space that occurs mm-hmm. when there's so many, like, political stakes at hand, um, as, like, he refers to, like, the terrain of the occupied Palestinian territories as, like, spatial organizations that reflect and respond to, like, the various powers at play and, like, various agents and, like, non-official and, like, sanctioned state agents or, like, um, or like resistance like movements or there's just like so much different like um, international um, powers and um, I don't know actions like maneuvers processes that like go into like shaping how mm-hmm. the space is like actually experienced on the ground and I thought um yeah, just the film's, like, a uh, very terrestrial, like, emphasis on the question of, like, mobility and, like, or, like, the question of, like, immobility is, like, was really um, pertinent to this idea of, like, elastic geography where mm-hmm. space is continually, like, contingent. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't, like, frame it as a plight of, like, some sort of person. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's kind of, like... Like, um, it just kind of seems like they did, they, like, go and do this, like, big, like, operation, and then they're kind of, like, they didn't, like, really think it through, Mm -hmm. so they're, they kind of, like, it's kind of, like, like, the whole, like, film is basically, like, because of their youngness and, like, immaturity and stuff, they're kind of, like, in too deep, I guess, Mm -hmm. so it's kind of, it's, like, a coming-of-age story, but it's also, like... Things are dire. Yeah. I think if, if I'm understanding it correct, there's like there was also an award-winning movie that was kind of centered around the refugee crisis in Europe. Uh, I think the Italian title translated is like Fire at Sea or Burning Sea or something like that. And it kind of takes a similar approach where it's like this very slow, um, very slow-paced, almost nostalgic type of movie looking at the life of people on this certain island where um, refugees often often frequent for their trips 
and it's kind of like looking at the personal life of the people who live there who encounter you know this type this type of um, crisis happening mm -hmm. and it kind of examines the role of uh, themselves as locals um, of the refugees and of tourists in Italy and I think that's or, I mean, yeah, yeah, that was a the tangent. Being, <laughs> no, the idea of being like stateless is like mm -hmm. a very like modern kind of like phenomenon mm -hmm. and like I don't know. I just it's also interesting that like these two like historically exilic like nations groups or whatever have come to like become embroiled in this like larger conflict that is mm -hmm. like all like based on the question of like property over land. And I just like another thing that I wanted to say that mm -hmm. Wiseman writes about, which I thought was interesting, is that he says that it's not when you're in a situation where like urban warfare is occurring um, in such like dense areas. He writes that it's not necessarily like the given order of space that governs patterns of movement, but movement itself that produces space around it. Mm -hmm. So I just thought that that was um, really relevant to the way in which Omar repurposes and constantly like um, reinterprets his environment. Like in the film, a lot of t he kind of does like parkour a lot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, someone said that when I presented it in my seminar. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's like, have you seen parkour? <laughs> <laughs> so I mean, how he do just like he like continually jumps over like like things and like because in like an Arab city, like um, the city is very like historic. Mm -hmm. Um, and there's like lots of walls and like um, labyrinth like like alleys and stuff. Mm -hmm. So he's just constantly like jumping over stuff and like <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah, it's, it's just interesting because you never like see that here. Hmm. I mean, uh, oh, did that you makes you far apart to parkour across buildings. I think. Oh yeah. yeah. So you talk about the director's like parkour and how did you translate that into your paper during the editing process? Like, how was the editing process for your paper? Uh, basically, I relied really heavy on, like, Wiseman's work, because mm -hmm. he has, like, like, the book is, like, this thick, and it, like, talks about, like, literally... For I'm audience members, can't <laughs> Sorry, yeah. It was, like, like this very thick. thick. <laughs> very thick. <laughs> the book is very thick. And, <laughs> and he, like, basically goes through, like, all the architectural aspects of, like, how the occupation is main maintained. Mm -hmm. um, sorry, what was that for? Oh, just like how was the editing process for you as a student for this symposium? Oh, it's rough. It's still like ongoing. Yeah. For the rest of you guys, how was the editing process for this paper? I mean, for for your paper, I can only imagine the kind of um, kind of loops that, or n not the loops, but kind of the mental gymnastics you kind of had to go through um, to kind of make sure everything was being represented right and. Uh, you didn't want to take like a very you wanted to take more of a nuanced stance to it. Yeah, definitely. Um, and they the, the the feedback was great because they just pinpointed like areas that needed a little bit more explanation mm -hmm. and maybe drawing out or maybe even rethinking. Mm -hmm. um, but as far as the editing process went in general, uh, it was pretty brazy um, compared to my experiences with the the not that they haven't been amazing with. Um, the UJA, like the undergraduate journal of art history, but I would get like 60 comments <laughs> each round. And so these ones are like, oh, we think your paper is great. These are just like the like six areas we need you to look at. And mm -hmm. so it was, um, it was definitely breezier in comparison. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Did you find a lot of that criticism helpful? Uh, definitely, okay. definitely, definitely. And uh, there's, it just, it just forces you to kind of rethink like basically everything you're saying. Mm -hmm. um, and then just recalibrate it in, that, in a way that's going to be legible to like 
to people because you're gonna be, we're gonna be getting asked all these questions at the symposium, mm-hmm. and so we have to make sure we really know our stuff and know our films really well. And mm-hmm. So that that's gonna be the the biggest benefit of having an ed- editing prof- process. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, you got CC comments on your criticism. I can only imagine how many comments you got, Marta, because Riverdale is kind of uh, kind of like a hot topic recently, and so I know some people who are hard die who are diehard fans for the show, and I know some people who are complete cynics of the show. So, how was the editing process for such a, a large show? <laughs> yeah, um, it actually no one really was basing opinions off the show, which is ah, nice. Okay. It was a very like critical at like a strictly on the work and the content and the like making sure the ideas are coming across mm-hmm. well um i'm also an editor for you Josh, so it was very interesting being on the opposite side and uh taking the criticism mm-hmm. so that was kind of a little bit of a shift in the editing experience for me um and yeah it was definitely helpful and it's always interesting to have um other students especially in film or with a knowledge on kind of some of the more bigger topics you're working through um, to see how your ideas kind of translate across to someone else because I've read this paper how many times for my class, uh, for submitting it to the symposium, Mm -hmm. um, revising it, and now I'm going to be revising it to a presentation. So I've seen it many times and your words kind of get lost in your own head and so Mm -hmm. it's so helpful to have um, an extra set of Mm -hmm. eyes and and, um, even what Max was saying, just pointing out areas where elaborate on this or explain this a bit better mm-hmm. um, especially coming from an academic setting into a more conversational setting and supposing where you're going to have that kind of Q&A and um, maybe even people not even in film or art history or the arts and all, at all it's open to everyone right so you mm-hmm. kind of want to be able to tap into those audiences um, and like Linnea you were saying you want to make your work more accessible with mm-hmm. a video so yeah just kind of taking something that's so um, critical and set for a classroom setting and um, that's kind of was the most difficult thing, kind of making it more of a paper for everyone to gain something from and to uh, tackle that that huge fandom behind the show too because I want to be able to reach those kind of, that wide range of audience that watches Riverdale. Mm-hmm. Interesting. And I mean, for making your work more accessible, it totally does count on, ooh, what was my thought? Um, I, I think including the kind of fandoms uh, or making it more accessible to the fandoms of certain shows definitely works to your benefit just because I find that in academia fandom or in just general like just fanhood is kind of brushed aside because it's kind of like this frothing at the mouth manic kind of the mm-hmm. image you kind of see it's too emotional yeah. Yeah. yeah or it's yeah it's a little more like surface level or, yeah yeah but that's why these that's why these texts have been so popular in yeah. media so yeah kudos to you thank you yeah yeah it's an interesting um topic to delve into and yeah i just haven't really it's a new show so there isn't really much Mm -hmm. criticism on it so it was really interesting to kind of gain i mean bring really my fresh perspective Mm -hmm. without too much bias but also kind of learning from how shows of similar um genres and kind of topics come at it but again like riverdale offers a lot of different things than like veronica marzer again like these other shows um on the way gender is handled. I mean, the victim is a young boy instead of a young girl. Mm-hmm. So what does that do with the storyline? What does that do with how how the community and everyone kind of reacts to it? So it's um, interesting to tap into it that way. Mm-hmm. I feel like you're one side of the coin where it's like there isn't a ton of criticism for this show yet, or it's, you again, you wanted to take your fresh take into this kind of show. Mm-hmm. But Linnea, Lady Bird has been reviewed by everyone. And yeah. Everyone loves this film. So how was the editing process for you? It's got a lot of reviews, but I don't know yeah. if it's been like analyzed critically okay. as much. <coughs> Sorry. Um, 
I mean, in terms of the editing process, unfortunately, I was uh, making a short film during uh, most of the months that we've mm-hmm. had, so I didn't do it most of the time, but uh, just uh, in the last couple of weeks, it's been mostly converting it from essay format and, like, academia and, like, talking about ideology and, like, getting rid of all the excess stuff that you don't really need to know to engage mm-hmm. with the ideas and, like, pushing it into video essay form with, like, little jokes and trying to figure out what visuals can match. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's always fun and frustrating because you're like, well, I already have an essay here. Why do I have to, why am I doing this to myself? Why am I making it another essay? Because um, they end up being, like I did a video essay last year for a course on Asian minimalism and it was like, yeah, I'd love to do a video essay. They seem like so much fun. They'll be so easy. But it's like you have to write an essay and then convert it. And mm-hmm. it's like, why don't you just write an essay? Um, because it's fun to make things accessible. That's why. Um, but that's been most of the editing process for me. Um, in terms of feedback, like the stuff that I've gotten has been super useful. Unfortunately, I didn't really have the time to address some of it. Like there was a lot of suggestions that I got of like, well, you could maybe engage it with this stuff or like expand here. But then I was like, well, it's just going to make the video essay too long, unfortunately. But it's been a good process. So I'd recommend it to any prospective students thinking about applying next year. <laughs> Hopefully you can get that video um, up on, where is it? On your I will YouTube put or? it on YouTube for sure. Okay. Yeah, no matter what. And Perhaps then, we will put that on the Oopsa Facebook yeah. page, maybe. <laughs> Feel free. For sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, I understand the whole kind of problem where it's kind of crunch time this time of year. Yeah. Right? But Especially for you all. Like, you guys are troops, or like troops, troopers, troopers. champs for, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> for being able to um, kind of still do the symposium, even though it's kind of paper season already. I can kind of imagine. Yeah, I found what's hardest, though, is I, I'm kind of like Misha. I wrote this basically a year ago. So it's mm-hmm. revisiting a work that you've kind of, you've, birthed you've wrestled with and then you've kind of accepted where it's at handed it in get yeah. your mark you're done and then you have to reopen yeah. all of those feelings again and it's like, like oh, i thought i put this in the yeah, void already. it's already in the vault it's gone like it's, it's, a, it's, it's a, back there with the rest of my mm-hmm. academic like career it's a baby you raised and you saw it grow up and then you sent it away and now it's back so that's hard but it's also fun too because you get to I don't know, I guess relook at all all your ideas and the things you brought before. But um, I actually have a question for you, Linnea, because I'm now making my presentation and I'm finding it so hard to kind of, I don't want to say dumb it down, but like simplify it and mm-hmm. make sure that it's more punchier and mm-hmm. like you said, less of these big words. Like how, mm-hmm. I don't, how do you even do that? I don't know. It just happens. Um, I guess maybe, I think it's also just like, I, 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 I'm very colloquial in the way that I address the world. So I just like make it into the words that I would say to like a friend. So you can like imagine you're talking to like somebody who doesn't know anything about the topic. Um, I got a friend of mine to read it who like has, has not even gone to university. And I was like, can you understand this? Let me know. Uh, so that can help. Um, I put in dumb jokes sometimes. That's um, okay. Light the mood, yeah. Yeah. Um, I think I put in a joke about Adam Sandler in an essay about... Yikes! ...about oh. um, Walter Benjamin. That was fun. Um, anyways, um, like, I think a lot of it, a lot of academia has um, big, big terminology that I think can usually be cut down most yeah. of the time, and you can kind of say, just say, like, a simpler, more colloquial way but that's how I do it. Mm-hmm. It ends up being it ends up being perhaps less like rigorous or exact, but it's more, more easy to understand. Yeah. Mm-hmm. When I think yeah. video essay, I think Lindsay Ellis. Mm. Do you guys know her? Or? No. Okay, she used to be nostalgia chick. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so yeah. now she makes like these uh, full fledged video essays. A lot of them on Disney apologism, um, which I don't know how I feel about that yet. But they're very interesting, and I feel mm-hmm. like 
uh, in that way, she does make it accessible without making it oversimplified. Yeah, you don't, yeah. I mean, you obviously need to still include some words, and I think most yeah. people are smart enough to tag along. I think it's yeah. just, like, sometimes, um, usually it's just, like, taking a big sentence that lasts, like, four lines and then just making it one, and then, like, taking yeah. the next one and, like, making them as short as possible. It's tough, like, um, being concise, but I think that's almost the, the secret to it. But, totally, yeah. 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 Okay. Cool. I no no no. You can definitely talk about this I said, more. I said, who knows? Yeah, <laughs> we'll see at symposium. We'll see at the like, symposium. I, don't, I have no clue yeah. if mine is going to be accessible at all. I just I hope it is. Well, hopefully yeah. you guys can see how accessible it is mm-hmm. at the symposium. Um, we understand that it's crunch time, but thank you guys so much for coming out and doing this podcast. It was an Thanks honor to thank talk you. about your essays. The UFSA Symposium will be at 4 to 8 p.m. on Friday, March 23rd uh, at the Buchanan Penthouse. So that is Buke C, and then you just keep going up. Thank you, listeners, for tuning in, and we hope to see you at the symposium. And thank you all to our wonderful students who will be featured at the symposium.